What I'm about to tell is that I don't know if it's my own memories or stories people have been telling me. Hi, welcome to Norwegian Newcomers, the podcast where we hear fragments from the lives of Norway's immigrant population. My name is Vedran Atanovic, and today's story starts when our guest is very young. But now I have a, like a full picture of what's, what happened. We will hear about a child that went through a lot as a refugee and as an adult, reflecting upon her experiences. I've been trying to fill the holes in my memory, but I have some places I can tell you that this I remember, I'm for sure. This is Avin's story. Avin, hello and welcome. Hello. From the very beginning, I would like you to tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Evin. I am 28 now. I'm married to David. We've been married for seven years. <laughs> I have two children and I live uh, in Ytre Enebak, a place near Oslo. I came to Norway when I was four, around three, four, in 1996 from Iran. Can you tell us a little bit about your home country? Okay, so I haven't been there myself, actually, after I left, because I'm a political refugee. Uh, But what I know from what my mom has been telling me is she says that it's the most beautiful country ever. It's so green, it's full of life, flowers, and very, very polite people. Very warm people. They're always, you're always welcome to eat dinner with the strangers. They talk to strangers on the bus, in the cafes. Very polite people. Do you think that you will go one day and visit? Uh, for now, I know that I'm, uh, I shouldn't go back because my parents tell me that it's life threatening if I go back because they know my last name and everything. So it's not safe. But my mom has been telling me that she wants to go back too, and she's not going to go back. But they're hoping for a, a change in the regime because it's very, very Islamic now, very oppressed, the people. So it's not a good place to be right now for anyone. But she's hoping for a change. Then she will go back. I met my grandmother once when I was 12 years old because then we, we went to Iraq and then in Iran, they're allowed to come to Iraq for a week. So we met there in secret. <laughs> but because they can't be known, it can't be known that they've been visiting us because then they will get um, murdered too. Can you recall your road to Norway? Those uh, memories from the very beginning? Well, I'm actually trying, I'm trying to write a book about this. So I've been doing a lot of research and uh, interviews and stuff. So what I'm about to tell is that I don't know if it's my own memories or stories people have been telling me, you know, but I have some places I can tell you that this I remember, I'm for sure. But it happened in 1996. So my dad is a political uh, giant down there for the Kurds. He started to write poems about the Kurdish people and their freedom. And then this turned later out to be songs. And he got a bunch of supporters and fans. That wasn't so popular. 
he was also a leader of a guerrilla. <laughs> so he was a fighter. The Iranian people at that time, they didn't like the Kurdish people. We weren't allowed to speak our language. We weren't allowed to do anything, you know. We had to be Persians. So we heard that the, we should leave now. And so we did, and we got over the border very uh, nicely, actually. And we moved to a, a tiny place in Iraq. So in northern Iraq, there are a lot of Kurds. It's just another dialect, but we understand each other. So these people knew who my dad was. So we were very welcome in that village. And uh, we lived there for a couple of months until one of our neighbors came and warned us. Hey, they know that you guys are here now. It's a price for your head. So a lot of people are after to kill you. Yeah, we had to leave to another place and even tinier village. By then it was just me. I was two years old. My brother was four or five years old and my mom and dad. And in the middle of the night, my brother had to go to the bathroom and the toilet was outside, like 100 meters away from the cottage. So he woke up my mother, but she was afraid of the dark. So she was like, just ask your dad. <laughs> I'm not going. So he woke up my dad and they went together. But then when my mom is telling me the story now, she says that she got a feeling of unpeace, that she wasn't supposed to be in the cottage. So she took me in her arms and she went to the toilet outside too. And when we got to the toilet, our cottage blew up. We had uh, nothing on us. And the only thing, my dad is really badass, if you haven't noticed yet. So he started the car without his keys. <laughs> And we, and, we, and we drove up to the mountains and we were there for three nights in the cave. And when my mom was uh, pregnant, she was big by then. And she said that it was, it was very hard. We were sleeping on the rocks and uh, it was uh, scorpions and we ate snake. It was just crazy. So in the end, you don't care if the pillow is there or not. You just have to survive. After three days, we went back, uh, drove back to the uh, cottage and it was only smoky pieces laying around. It was burned down. And I, this I think I remember is that I went to one of the corners of the house. It was a glass dolly. She was on, she was on top of a glass shelf and I, I was not used to play with her so much, but she was like my favorite dolly. She had clear blue ocean eyes and her hair was dark and her skin was light. Uh, just like my husband today, by the way. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I remember going there looking for her and, and I found her under some, some wood. And uh, she was all uh, greasy and ashy, full of ashes and her jaw was broken off and her shoes and hair was melted and it was just a really sad sight I think for a three four year old girl um, and my parents they were looking for the registration papers and passports and everything but everything was burned the only thing we got with us that day was my brother's football <laughs> it survived <laughs> 
so what will happen is that we uh, drove to another place and we lived there with some friends. And then it was like, they're coming back again. You have to leave. So that's when we decided to go to the refugee camp. And on our way there, it was a very tough way to go. We couldn't drive. We had to walk. Suddenly we had like a lot of people coming with us. So my dad became a leader again because they were like, we trust this guy. We're going behind him. And it wasn't so it wasn't just my family and me and my brother and my mom. He had to take care of it was other people, too. And my mom tells me that on our way to this refugee camp, it was a river in the end of a valley. When we got into the valley, uh, suddenly people were starting to shoot down on us. So it was soldiers up on the mountains shooting on us. So we were trapped and the, and the group split in two on each side of the river. And everybody who wasn't on our side of the river, they died that day. And my mom remembered specifically that she saw like people running without hands. And, and it was just very uh, scary images. She experienced a lot, but that, that was something. After that, on our way, we came by a house and we had camped there and tried to sleep the night there. And then she told me that I went by myself somewhere nearby. And then they suddenly heard a big, loud noise, explosion. And they were like, where's Evan? And they ran towards this noise and uh, they found me laying there. I wasn't uh, awake. They couldn't, I was, I had pulse. I was unconscious. So, uh, and uh, uh, after a while I woke up, but I, uh, I, she said, told me that I didn't eat or talk for a week. It's very hard to get water, me to drink water. And, and uh, she was very stressed. She was like, we have to go to this refugee camp now. But my dad was like, no, we need to rest. We're tired. And she was like, I am not staying here. I'm leaving, whether with you or without you. So we got to that camp and the, the doctors, they said that if you would come a day later, she would be dead. So we were at the refugee camp for a year and then... Uh, they were, they, my dad told me that they gave him uh, a list full of names. It was Australia, Canada, Germany, Sweden, America, and little Norway in the end. And he was like, yes, I would like to pick Norway. Okay, so, but was it uh, based on, on something, anything, or it was just... He had a half-brother who came to Norway uh, a couple of years before him. So that's why. Ah, okay. It was that was the link. It's not because he loves snow, because he doesn't. <laughs> yeah. So that's how we came to Norway. We came to Christian Sand first, because we are political refugees. Norway they open their arms for like 150 or 200 families a year. So we call it quote refugees in Norway. Quote uh, afflicting, and they have a apartment for them, kindergarten place, clothes. A full refrigerator. They have everything they need. So we we were very lucky. Unlike the uh, refugees that we hear about today, who comes to Norway by boat and uh, you know, so we were lucky. We got here by a flight. We took a plane, and we had a bodyguard with us all the way. And we drank orange juice on the flight. It was my first time trying orange juice. It's uh, I'm very lucky. I can see that. 
But do you remember when you moved? Uh, was it uh, winter season or? It was winter. Uh, because everyone yeah. I spoke uh, in this podcast, everyone came in the winter season or in December, November. So snow was the first thing and cold. Yes. You, you are also <laughs> in the club. Of yes, I remember winter. we were, uh, my, brother, my brother was wearing shorts and he was freezing. He was just standing there and like, is there people living here? Is there normal people like us living here? And what are they wearing? You can't even see the person because they're rolled around with blankets and jackets and everything. And then you started the kindergarten or school? Yes, I started kindergarten uh, first. It was an international kindergarten where they spoke English. So I went there for like a year or something. And then I went to school, Mutak Skola. It's a school for uh, foreigners who doesn't speak English. So they teach them the basics of Norwegian. And then after that year, I started SFO. It's like an activity school after school. Usually uh, parents are not free from work until four o'clock and the kids are done at two. So they usually they go to the activity school where they just eat and play songs and just have fun. So I, I went to school on the, in the Mutok school with the refugees. And then I went to activity school later in the Norwegian school. That was very good for me because it was a good way for me to learn the language, I think. And then we moved. We got a bigger house. It was so fun because it's like there was no foreigners there. It was only blonde people blue eyes it's the best way of integration politics i think me and my family we got integrated so fast my mom started going to school and i got only norwegian friends and i remember my first day at school i was in second grade by then so i was like seven years old and they were all standing outside the gym with their, their backpacks on very straight and i was standing over on the other side with my new teacher and she was like everyone this is evan say welcome be nice to her And this one blonde little girl ran to me and she's like, I like your backpack. I like horses too. And uh, she's still my best friend today. I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to Norwegian Newcomers and remind you that if you want to further support our podcast, we have a Patreon. There you will get every episode one week before everyone else. And we will be able to continue with this project that we really love. You can find us at patreon.com slash Norwegian Newcomers, or you can press the link in the episode description. Thank you very much. It really would mean a lot. I remember a really uh, sad story that the activity school, after school, we were a group of four girls. We had It was a big outdoor place, and it was a tiny little forest with trees and stuff. And we sat there and pretended that we were camping, And on the other side of the road, it was this woman. And she was walking towards us. She was just standing outside the border of the school. And she was like, hey, you guys, are you playing with that girl? And she was pointing at me. And they're like, yeah, well, you shouldn't. She's not like us, she said. And then she walked. She just walked. And we were like, what was that? And my friend didn't understand. We were like, just like eight years old or something. Somehow we knew that this is racist behavior and it's not allowed, you know, because they teach us in school, that's not allowed. And we knew where she was going because she, she was going to the store nearby. And we ran to this teacher and we were like, she told us that we can't play with her because she's, she's different. 
And I was just, I was really sad and shocked. I think I'm like, why? I'm no different than them. So my teacher, she, I still, Hella, I remember her name still. She took me and the girls and she's like, come with me. We went to the store and we were never allowed to leave the schoolyard. But she was like, come girls. And we went and we catched her and we're like, hey, you. And she screamed at her. She's like, you're not allowed to say those things. Are you from like the stone age? Where is your brain? You don't speak like that. And it was just like justice. She stood up for me. And that most of my life in Norway, I've experienced no racism at all, actually. But I think that that experience with this grown-up woman in my after-school class when she was like, she stood up for me and I understood how much that meant. When I moved to Oslo uh, four or three years ago, I've decided that I'm going to stand up for the week. I'm a pastor, of course, so I do that. <laughs> it's my job. But, but I decided that I'm, I'm going to speak up. On my way back from a Sunday service, I was sitting in the subway and uh, it was a woman in front of me and uh, three or four foreigners behind me. We were all foreigners. And, and she was like screaming like, you black people, you only steal and murder. You're not welcome. She wasn't like 100% in her head. I, I could see that. And all the foreigners were like, they looked at her and they definitely understood what she was saying. But none of them dared to speak up. And there was some Norwegians there too, and they could hear her also, but no one was saying anything. So and I became so angry and my hand was sweating. And I told my husband, I'm like, if she says another word, I'm going to kick her ass. <laughs> I'm going to beat the devil out of her, <laughs> you know? And then I took my hair up in a ponytail in just in case she wanted a cat fight. <laughs> I was ready. And I was walking up to her, I'm like, hey, you! We don't speak like that in Norway. I don't know about you, but in this country, we don't do that. In Norway, you know, like I'm Norwegian. And she's like, you're not Norwegian. I'm like, I am more Norwegian than you because I know this is not allowed here. So get out. <laughs> but Evan, I wanted to ask you before this interview, I, I saw an article about you on Facebook. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit about that story. So the article you're referring to is from Coco, Kvinner och Klär, Women and Clothes. I think it's an Norwegian biggest women magazine. So what happened is that I uh, gave birth in October. It was in my, in my second time, you know, so I was prepared that uh, I know what's coming. coming. But I wasn't prepared that COVID would uh, affect me in the way it did. Because in Norway, we have uh, uh, something called mörketid, like the dark times. It's a very bad word, actually. It's only getting darker and darker and darker, so you don't see the sun physically. If you live up north, it's like three, four months without sun. I live in the southest point in Norway almost, so it's not that mörketid. But we have like, you see the sun for like two hours, maybe. So this was in November, and we, I knew that it was only going to get darker outside. And I also became darker in my mind because suddenly when Miriam, that's her name, my baby, she, she started crying a lot and I had no idea what happened. I'm like, I didn't know why she cried. I gave, uh, I gave her food and I changed her diaper and I tried to make her sleep. But I'm, I'm serious. I could use like four or five hours to make her fall asleep for like only 30 minutes. She slept 30 minutes and I tried for five hours And it was on it again, you know, when she woke up. And that this happened for two weeks. And 
I was sitting there in this dark room all by myself. My husband, he tried to help me, but I was like, no, I'm a mom, <laughs> you know, I can do this. But I was really draining myself physically and psychologically. And, and, and it was not like the other time with Mathia, the, the big sister. She was born in summer and it was no pandemic and everybody came visit like every day people were coming. So I had to like make a schedule. Like you can come between two and three and you can come between five and six. Like it was so many people around, so many gifts, so much good food. But now it was, it was winter, cold, dark, 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 no sleep and no visitation, no gifts. Like it was just so lonely. She was six weeks now and no one had seen her. And usually also in Norway, you get something called Bachselgruppe. That's like um, they organize the women nearby that had gotten baby in the same period of time. So the health center here, they're organized so that you get, get in touch with each other. So the first time uh, we have a nurse, she's with us and she's like, hey, you guys, you guys are the group. And this is what you can do. Let's talk about what's your name? What's your name? What's your name? Now you can, I'm going to leave. It's really nice. Everybody gets this if they want. And after that, it's our, up to us if you want to stay in touch or not with these women. But usually they do, like women here in Norway. They stay in touch and their kids become grown-ups together and become best friends. <laughs> Happy story. But now, during the pandemic, they decided not to prioritize this. And I understand that, of course, but I couldn't allow it to be it. But you get to come to the physical therapist because that's very important for the baby where you learn about the head position and how to train them and all everything. And there it was six of four other women, I think. And they had like babies who were one month or two weeks older than mine or something. It wasn't like a Bachselgruppe where they're like the same week, but it was okay. I, I'll take it. But it's not a place where we're supposed to connect with each other. It's just a physical therapist it's speaking and we can ask questions and then everybody leaves. But me and another woman in my group, uh, Michelle, we were like, hey, we should just stay in touch with each other. So we asked the two other women to join us. And we, so what we did that we were like, okay, let's just make a Facebook group. So we did that. We call it the Pandemic Kids, Enabak, very dark name. <laughs> I was in a dark place. And also the same week we started this group, I, I was in my second week of a postpartum depression, I think. Something similar to depression, at least. I hadn't talked to anyone. And actually, this physical therapist uh, session, I was considering not going. I was like, no, I don't want to go. And my husband was like, yes, you're going. If I even have to dress you up, you have to go. So he drove me all the way. And, and so what happened that week was that I... I understood that I had to take charge of my life and decide if I want to stay here in self-pity darkness or if I want to get out of there. What I did was that I stopped, first of all, Googling everything, how to make it, uh, children stop crying, how to make a baby sleep, blah, blah, blah. I stopped doing that because that's bad. Don't Google stuff if you don't want to know. And um, I also uh, sent a message to one of the women in my church. She's a family therapist and a very good friend of mine. So I reached out to her and I said, hey, I'm struggling right now. Can we talk? So I contacted her and she said, okay, let's talk on FaceTime when the kids are gone to bed. And 
I'm like, okay, she won't sleep until nine o'clock, but I will call you after that. <laughs> and then, um, so I called her and I just started bawling. Like I cried, I cried, I cried. And I was like, so, so upset. And she was like, why haven't you called me earlier? Like, why haven't you called me before all this happened? It's been two weeks like this, right? I'm like, yeah. And she said, have you been outside? I'm like, no. <laughs> she said, you need to get outside. Uh, she have you been with people? I'm like, no, it's a pandemic. She's like, you need to find a way to be with people. And I'm like, how is that possible? I mean, like, I'm a pastor and the church is closed. We're not allowed to have Sunday service. We're not allowed to meet people in the church. We have to stay two meter distance. Uh, like, it's impossible to meet people. But she gave him inspiration, though. So what I decided was that I'm going to take a screenshot. Because after the conversation with the, my friend, I felt so much lighter. And I just felt like, why have I just kept this to myself? And this is such a normal feeling postpartum depression or depression, whatever you call it, and especially during the pandemic. And then I start reading about it and it stood that when it comes to postpartum depression, it's been a 75% increase of it in Norway. 75% more postpartum depression during the pandemic. It's so much. So I screenshot the message I texted her where he said, I'm struggling, can we talk? Uh, and I posted on my Facebook and Instagram account and the response were just tremendous. It was so many people all around, like people I haven't talked to since kindergarten, you know? It was just crazy amount of response and people I look up to, people I think like have the perfect life, people who have like so much money and they're like, I struggle too. I go to therapy now. And it was shocking. And my friend, Michelle, the one that I had in physical therapy session with the baby, she contacted me too. And I forgot that I am friend with her on Facebook. And I'm like, whoopsie, she thinks I'm a psycho now. <laughs> but she texted me and she's like, hey, so do you want to uh, meet up? You know, and then the, the cafe here was open still at that time. Yeah, of course. So we met up. We had to have to meter distance but we like we were just sitting there for four hours just talking about how life is and after that I walked home 40 minutes walk I didn't take the bus I'm like I'm gonna walk and I started crying on my way and it was dark and it start and then it started raining and my apples I, I I bought some apples they fell on the ground and it was everywhere and I was like life just can't get worse. It's only one way up from here. <laughs> so me and Michelle decided to invite some other people in the Facebook group. She She's from here. I'm just new to this place. She knew a lot of women who hadn't gotten Bachselgruppe, you know, because of the pandemic. A lot of women here were alone. So she just invited people, one from there and one from there and there. Suddenly we just became a big group. And now we're like 73 people here, only here in this little place. I think it's, it lives like 7,000 people here and it's like 73 of them, you know, here. And the, and the, also the health station here, they recommend women to join this group. So now I have, po I have posters everywhere like, do you miss a group, a Bachselgruppe? Join us, pandemic. <laughs> Hopefully we have to change name. But yeah, pandemic kids in a book 2020, 2021. So I hope it's not a 2022 so now I have started, because since I'm a, a, a pastor, I have this uh, big building we're not using. So I was like, okay, so I have a church and uh, it's not personal. If I make it to an event as a pastor, not as an individual, then I can be, we can be 10 person. 
And she was like, that's genius. And none of these women are Christian, actually, uh, like two or three, maybe. But they're like, let's do this. Michelle was with me. She shopped. I was I was still dark, you know, I was struggling. So she's like, I will shop coffee, tea and arrange everything. You just ha- open the door. I'm like, OK, I can do that. And the uh, first time it came uh, like seven mothers with seven kids. And then it came like nine, I think. And because we haven't been allowed to meet every every time, you know, because like it was so very strict a period of time up and down, up and down. But we've been meeting, we've been, yeah, we've been meeting the last month, I think every Tuesday. And on Tuesday this week, we were, we were 11. So it's, it's go, it's like people are telling people about this and it's not that big of church. So we were, we have to still have a meter distance, you know? So it's enough. <laughs> 11, so 11 is enough. But that, yeah. So I want to thank you for, sharing. And I'm glad uh, hearing and seeing that you managed to to make things better for yourself, your family, but also to to help others. So have you plans in the future? Are are you staying where you are or? Uh, I have a dream to uh, grow old in Christian sand. That's my heart. I'm going to grow older and have a boat. Somehow (laughs) I I believe that will happen. (laughs) Yes. Amen. (laughs) Thank you very much for your time. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Thank you for being part of Norwegian Newcomers. Thank you. This episode was made possible with support from Berges and Steve Telsen and our members on Patreon. If you would like to support our podcast, search for Norwegian Newcomers on Patreon, Facebook or Instagram. We are back next Tuesday. Thank you for listening and take care.